You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Good to see you this morning. Glad you're here today. If this is your first time at Mountain View, uh, a special welcome to you. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and... uh, It's my privilege this morning to open up God's Word with you. And so I invite you uh, to turn once again to the book of Exodus. We are in chapter 19 this morning. It has been a long journey from Egypt through the wilderness. And we arrive today at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. That place where the children of Israel are going to be for almost a year. In fact, this is the geographic center of the first five books of the Old Testament. When the children of Israel arrive here, they will be here for the rest of the book of Exodus. They will be here for all of the book of Leviticus. And they will be here through part of the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. What happens here is incredibly significant. In fact, I would go so far as to say that what happens here is indispensable, not only for understanding who Israel is supposed to be, but for understanding what happens in the rest of the Old Testament when they fail miserably and God exiles them from the land that he is going to send them or bring them into. All that to say, as we arrive at Sinai this morning and we look at the first six verses of chapter 19, I want you to pay close attention to what God says to this band of recently freed slaves. I want you to pay close attention to the promises he makes if and only if these people that he's redeemed will enter into a covenant relationship with him. If they will do that, God promises to make them a radiant People, a bright and shining people, a city on a hill, really, that the rest of the world can look to to see who God is and what it means to be in relationship with him. Now, in case you don't know, God has also given us that mission as his new covenant people. And as we're going to see this morning, The things that God says to Israel, according to the Apostle Peter, transfer to us. And there are some serious and incredible implications for our lives as well. So Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Holy Spirit writes. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Heavenly Father, we enter in this morning to a new portion of the book of Exodus. Lord, you have redeemed this people in power. You have rescued them with great and incredible mercy. You have carried them to yourself through the wilderness. And now they are here at this mountain to meet with you. And more than simply to meet with you, they are here to enter into a close, intimate, covenant relationship with you. They are here to respond to your grace. They are here to be molded, shaped, and formed in your presence into your own special people, a special people that's intended to radiate light into the rest of the world. Oh God, may we not miss the message for us today that you have indeed redeemed us for the very same purpose. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling the calling where your forefathers failed. And thank you for inviting us into your mission and for empowering us for your mission through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us in power. Speak to us with conviction. Speak to us with clarity. And speak to us today in order that we might become all you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to talk this morning about what it means to be a radiant church. This is one of those passages that coming into this week I was familiar with, and sometimes that makes it more difficult for me to know exactly how to say what I want to say, because frankly, oftentimes when you and I are familiar with biblical passages, it's easy just to kind of brush right by them or to blow right through them. So the message didn't come together so easily this week, but when it did, I was incredibly excited about what the Lord wanted me to share with you this morning. As we talk about the people of God, both Old Testament and New, I want us to talk about what it means to be a radiant people and how we become a radiant people who shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of the world. The first thing we see here this morning is that a radiant church is forged in the presence of God. From the get-go, the children of Israel have been bound for this mountain. In fact, it was right here at Mount Sinai that Moses first met Yahweh. And it was on this mountain in the wilderness that Yahweh promised Moses 
he would return with the people of Israel. Going all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, you'll remember what God said to Moses, but I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, the first two verses of Exodus chapter 16 are, are, are beautifully and intentionally constructed. They're laid out in something of a stair-step fashion that depict the people of Israel going up out of the depths of slavery in Egypt and into the very presence of Yahweh on the mountain. Why? Well, as we're going to see, God brought them to himself in order that he might enter into a committed relationship with him. And once they do, to learn from him what it means to belong to him. But notice how those first two verses are constructed. On the third new moon, after the people of God had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on the day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So that's step one. That's them coming all the way out of Egypt and into Sinai. But look at verse 2. We're told the same thing again, but from a different vantage point. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. That's step two, getting us a little bit closer to the mountain. And then they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. That's step two. Three, they're closer to God than they were when the journey started. In fact, it says Moses has now gone up onto the mountain to meet with God on behalf of the people. So it's here. As Israel meets with her God in God's presence, that God will make this band of former slaves into a fully functioning nation for the sake of the nations. It's here in the presence of God that they will become who God has always promised and intended them to be. Now in the same way, when Jesus, God in the flesh, our Emmanuel, called his disciples, he called his disciples first and foremost to be with him, to learn from him and through him what it would mean for them to follow him and to be citizens in his kingdom. Jesus spent nearly three years with his first disciples, teaching them, training them, and modeling for them what it would mean for them to then go out and recruit others to follow him, and once he returned to the Father, what did he do but send his spirit, not only to be with them, but what? To dwell within them and to go with them as they fulfilled the mission and commission Jesus had given them to spread the good news of his life, his death, and his resurrection abroad. Those first disciples... They became who they were because they had been with Jesus. 
They became who they were because the very presence of the risen and reigning Christ came to live within them and to empower them to go and bear witness to his name. The Jewish religious leaders who arrested some of the disciples early in the book of Acts, who demanded that they stop preaching in the name of Jesus, they knew this to be true about them. Acts 4.13 says, Now they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And perceiving that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. Now church, I have a question for you. Would, would, would anyone Would anyone be able to tell once you and I leave this place on Sunday mornings that we have been with Jesus? Would anyone be able to tell when we leave this place on Sunday mornings that we've made our way from the wilderness of the world and we have situated ourselves here in this place in the very presence of Yahweh, the living God? Would anyone be able to tell once we leave our homes on Monday morning, that we've been with Jesus or that his spirit dwells within us. You see, God intended the nation of Israel to resemble him, to reflect his character into a pagan world. And God would not only intend this, But God drew them to himself in order to make it so. Jesus intended his disciples to resemble him and to reflect his character into a pagan world as a direct result of their having been with him and having been taught by him. Brothers and sisters, a vibrant, living, community-affecting, radiant kind of church will only ever be birthed among people who are hungry for the presence of the living God. A people who are absolutely convinced that Jesus is the living one. That Jesus is the bread of life and that apart from him we have no good thing. Are you and I hungry and thirsty for the presence of God this morning? There's no doubt that you and I have been walking through the wilderness of this world in all kinds of different ways this week. And are you ready to drink? Drink the water from the rock and eat the bread from heaven. Do you and I come into this place on Sunday mornings eager to meet with God and hear from God? Or is this just part of the routine? Going further, I would say this, a vibrant, radiant kind of church 
The kind of church that shines the light of the gospel into a dark world is the kind of church that comes into a place like this and says, God, without your light, we're not going to be able to take the light. A vibrant, radiant church will only ever be birthed among people who are absolutely convinced that without the presence of the living God, we can do nothing. Are you and I convinced of that? Are you and I convinced that we can do nothing apart from the living God, apart from the life-giving, fruit-producing power of his presence? The proof is always in the pudding, friends. We don't actually believe what we say we believe. We believe what we actually do. So do we believe that we will not have any impact on this community without the presence of God among us? If we do, then why aren't we crying out for it? Why don't we come in here with some sort of eager, humble expectation that God's going to show up or even that we need him to show up? A church that radiates the light of the gospel into the darkness. It's going to be a church where people are hungry to meet with God and humble enough to admit that we are dead in the water without them. Where we are eager to go deep in the presence of God, deep with one another, believing, believing the promise that says if we seek God, we will find him. He's not trying to hide from us. But God does intend that his people seek after him. He's drawn us to himself. He's given us his spirit. He is here among us. Will any of us say, Lord, we want you. We want more of you. We need more of you. A radiant church is a church that's forged in the presence of God as Israel was about to be. A radiant church is a church forged in the presence of God by the grace of God. Now notice what the text says. Verse 3, while Moses went up to God, and there on the mountain of God, God called to him, saying, thus... You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Friends, that is a beautiful summary of the first half of the book of Exodus, poetically represented in one single verse of Scripture. God's been true to his promises to Abraham. He's been true to his promises to Moses. He's been true to his promises to his people. He's rescued them. He's redeemed them. He's plucked them up out of death and carried them into his presence. And they've deserved none of it. All of it has been gift. 
After all, if you've been with us for any length of time over the past month, you know that these people's hearts aren't submitted or surrendered to this God who's given so much to them. All of it's been grace. God has routed the gods of Egypt and threw off the chains of their vile oppressor. Yahweh has made a way for them to walk through the sea on dry ground, and he has utterly obliterated Pharaoh's forces. They'll never have to worry about him coming after them again. Yahweh's led them through the wilderness tenderly and patiently training them to trust him, providing for them and and protecting them in spite of their lack of faith and their strange desire to return to Egypt. Now this is how God always saves It's all been gift. It's all going to be gift. And that is all for God's glory. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of our deservability, right? No. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace... By grace, you have been saved through faith. And friends, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And just as God intended to demonstrate his grace, both to and through the children of Israel, so he intends that you and I be a people who both experience and embody the grace of God. You see, a radiant church will be a church that magnifies the grace of God. A radiant church will be the kind of church that celebrates God's defeat of the powers of darkness. A radiant church will be the kind of church that gives thanks to the God who set us free from the realm of the devil, the God who set us free from death itself. A radiant church will be the kind of church that acknowledges that it is God who carries us and sustains us through the wilderness. A radiant church will be the kind of church that marvels over the fact That the living God does all of this. Not because any of us deserve it, but because he really is that kind. He really is that good. He really is that merciful. He really is that tender and that faithful. 
John Newton, that old slave ship captain converted and turned pastor in the 1700s, wrote these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Friends, do you not know? Do you not know that the very words that God spoke to Israel, he could say to every one of us today who are his children, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you upon eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Does the grace of God still throw you for a loop? Does it stop you in your tracks? Does it sweep you off your feet, people of God? If not, why? Have we become so cold and so callous to our own need for God and God's grace toward us that it's kind of like, meh. Could it be, could it be, as John Newton wrote, that you and I have lost a sense of the sweetness of grace because we've lost a sense of our own wretchedness? How many times do you and I hear in a given week a message from the world that sounds like this? You're good enough. You're strong enough. People like you, and if they don't, who cares? Because you've got what it takes. Could it be the case that our own church has drank too deeply of that message and not deeply enough of the message of grace that starts with bad news and only because it starts with bad news can it end in good news? Could it be, could it be that way too many Christians today are more like the Pharisee who prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like that man, than we are like the man who prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Could it be that we've gotten caught up in a culture of finger-pointing where everyone seems to have no problem saying that everyone else is the problem. Oh, the desperate need for a church full of people who are willing to say we are wrong. Oh, the desperate need for a church full of people who say that we are weak, who are willing to say that I am the problem. 
All of us, we sin in thought and word and deed. And if we're going to be a radiant church that actually impacts and influences the community, you and I had better get started looking in the mirror rather than pointing fingers. Man, the world desperately needs a grateful church that is continually blown away for God's blown away at God's love for us in spite of us. Oh, the desperate need for a church so intoxicated with grace that you and I no longer approach our fellow human beings as if we were better than them or they were worse than us. Instead, having tasted of the living water and the bread of life, we come to our neighbors as fellow beggars. We come to our neighbors not seeing them as the enemy, but as those who are hungry and thirsty and in need of the same grace we have been shown. I want to ask you a serious question. Could it be that the church has lost its luster, that the church has lost its beauty because we've ceased to be amazed by grace? Could it be that because we've ceased to be amazed by grace, we've actually ceased to be shaped by grace and to embody grace? Oh, how Murphy and Cherokee County need a radiant church full of grace recipients who walk out those doors and live in such a way that we stun our community because of our unexpected kindness, our unexpected mercy, and our unexpected generosity. Is that not what grace is? Could that be Mountain View Church? Could it be Mountain View Church? Yes, but we got to go back to the first question. How many of us are actually hungry for the presence of God? How many of us are actually hungry for God to make us into that kind of people? Because you and I don't become gracious by activating our own willpower. We become gracious by getting close to the one who is. A radiant church is forged in the presence of God by the grace of God, for the purposes of God. Now I want you to notice what the text says. Verse 3 again. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore. In other words, in light of what I've done for you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the whole earth is mine, and I could have chosen anybody, but I chose you. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now the order here is incredibly important. Having been saved by grace. You see that in the text, right? Having been saved by grace. Now comes the call to what? Obedience. Salvation has always worked that way. Salvation continues to work that way. Saved by grace, called to live out our faith through obedience. Yahweh issues an invitation to the children of Israel to submit themselves to him. Out of all the nations of the earth, all of which belong to him, according to Yahweh, he will take this people, this small and insignificant band of former slaves, and they will become the apple of his eye, his own treasured possession. Now that word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe a king's personal treasury. They will become his prized possession if they will obey him and keep his covenant. That is what this free band of slaves will become and it's what they will become for a very special divine purpose. The text says you shall be to me now we're getting into Israel's calling, Israel's vocation, the thing that God has freed them and brought them to himself for. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now later in the book of Exodus, and if we were to read on into the book of Leviticus, we're going to be introduced to the priesthood. We're going to be introduced to that special class of people within Israel who are set apart by God to care for the tabernacle, for all of the things within the tabernacle, to make sure that God's own dwelling place is set up exactly how God has intended it to be. More specifically, the priests within Israel will have the task, the duty, the responsibility, and the privilege of ministering to the people on God's behalf and ministering to God on the people's behalf. Now here's what Yahweh is saying to them. What Israel was going to observe through the Levitical priests, what God was going to show them through the priests in the tabernacle, they were to embody toward the whole world. 
They were to be a stand-in-the-gap people, if you will, dwelling literally between heaven and earth. A people who minister to other nations on behalf of their God and minister to God on behalf of the other nations. This was to be their calling. Now, how were they to do this? By being a holy nation. A set-apart, distinct, and different people. As different from the other nations as their God was different from the gods of the other nations. That's what holiness means, by the way. It means distinction. It means difference. If they would obey Yahweh, Yahweh would place them in their own land, in the middle of all the other nations, so that they might, by their worship and their way of life, show the nations how truly amazing and astonishing it is to be saved by, led by, forgiven by, loved by, taught by, and ruled by a God like Yahweh. Laid in his life, Moses himself saw the incredible potential that lie before Israel if they would indeed remain faithful to the God who had freed them from slavery. Listen to what he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of them. Keep them and do them. For that will be your what? Wisdom and your understanding in the sight of who? The peoples who, when they hear all of these statutes, will say, pay attention, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all of this law that I set before you today? Now those verses put the Ten Commandments in a totally different light. And I'm so excited to dive into Exodus 20 and to unpack the Ten Commandments in what I hope is a life-giving way. Because the commandments were a gift. A gift intended to be absorbed and adopted by the people of God that they might shine the light of God's goodness and grace into a pagan world. Now, if you've read ahead, if you know something of the rest of the Old Testament story, was Israel successful at this calling? Oh, y'all are, y'all are not saying that strong enough. Not even close. Not even close. They failed miserably. Do you know who didn't fail? 
Oh, y'all are getting good. Y'all know where where I'm going now. Y'all are like the kids in the Sunday school class who answer that question that way every time, no matter what the question is. What does a squirrel look like? Jesus? Good, good. Look, Jesus took up the calling of his people. Jesus, this lone Israelite, he took up the vocation of his people, this this treasured and beloved son of the father, this seed of Abraham. And through his perfect life of obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh, through his death for his people's unfaithfulness, through his victorious resurrection, which sets his people free from the grip of Satan and from the kingdom of darkness, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he now sits as king of the world, he is drawing a lost humanity back into the presence of God. What did he say in the Gospel of John but this? If I be lifted up, I will what? Like a magnet, I will draw all people to myself. Israel failed at that vocation. Jesus what? Succeeded. Now, As the redeemed people of God sent abroad into the world to establish communities of light where the presence of God is evident, it is no coincidence that those who belong to the Lord Jesus hear the same message and the same exhortations that the people of Israel heard when they first arrived at the mountain. The Apostle Peter in his first letter writes these words. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. See if they sound familiar. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. Abstain, in other words, from the slavery that you left behind, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles what? Honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Could it be that the church in our day has no discernible impact on our culture because our lives look no different from those of our neighbors? Now, I'm not talking so much about the old cliche, real Christians don't do this or that kind of attitude that often comes across as holier than that. Instead, what I'm talking about is being a people who, as Peter says, live discernibly honorable or good lives because we leave God-centered lives. I'm talking about living lives of devotion to our Father. Prioritizing time with Him and with His people. Discerning and rejecting wholesale the idols of our culture. Especially the idol of self. Choosing to take up our crosses and serving King Jesus joyfully with everything we are. Taking up our crosses and loving the world in sacrificial ways that they frankly can't understand and don't have a category for. I'm talking about the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm talking about bearing the name of Christ in an honorable way. I'm talking about recognizing simply this, brothers and sisters, if you call yourself a Christian. You should strive and I should strive to live by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that accurately represents who King Jesus is. If you have no interest in that, do not call yourself a Christian. I'm talking about being the kind of people who bear the fruit of the Spirit, who bear the kind of fruit that nourishes others, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. As we live in a hungry, thirsty world, that is starving for those kinds of things. And as the Spirit produces those kinds of things in us, we're to go about feeding the hungry and the thirsty. Look, God's calling us to be holy, even as He is holy, even as He was constituting Israel to be holy. 
Yet we have such a misunderstanding of that word. Holiness doesn't mean a retreat from everyday life. As you and I will see in the Ten Commandments and in the Book of the Covenant that follows, holiness means God changes every component of your life. Holiness means that God rushes in and God becomes king over everything. Holiness means that you and I open our hands, we take the key out of our pockets, we unlock every door in the home of our hearts, and we say, Jesus, have at What we're talking about is living, breathing, walking, talking, eating, sleeping, relating holiness. We're talking about the presence of God invading and impacting everything about our lives so that it's clear that there is something different about us and his name is Jesus. Look, a radiant church isn't radiant because it's made up of people who live just like their neighbors. A radiant church is radiant because it's made up of people who live differently from their neighbors. Do our lives distinguish us and draw attention to King Jesus? You and I have been set apart for that purpose. We have been made a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that with our lips and our lives we might now proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How do we do this? Peter says we wage war against our sinful urges. We put them to death. And we cry out to Christ through his spirit and say, change us. Make us into the people you want us to be. People who from the inside out radiate your gracious, life-giving presence into a dark world. We won't always be liked for that. But Peter says that that's not the point. The point is that people would come to know and glorify the God we know. That's why we live the lives that Christ is calling us to live. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? A radiant church is forged in the presence of God by the grace of God for the purposes of God. Heavenly Father,